Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We just spoke back on October 11th about his excellent book titled The Middle Class, really a, a very thorough inquiry into the rise of the middle class in the UK. It was originally published in 2006. Fascinating book. But today we're going to talk about one of his earlier books titled The Golden Warrior, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia, something that I'm interested in. I've read uh, Lawrence Arabia's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It's been decades, but really an interesting book. The author's name is Lawrence James, and this is not his. This is his first book published in 1993, but he's also published The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, 1997, Raj: The Making and Unmaking of British India, 1998, The Illustrated Rise and Fall of the British Empire, 2000, Aristocrats: Power, Grace, and Decadence, Britain's Ruling. Great ruling classes from 1066 to the present, that was 2010. And then the Iron Duke, a military biography of Wellington, 2020, and also in 2020 was Imperial Warrior, The Life and Times of Field Marshal Viscount Allenby, 1861 to 1936. Kind of overlaps with this story about uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And he has another title coming out next year titled The Lion and the Dragon. So I'm looking forward to that. But again, we're going to talk about this book, originally published. There's also an audio book of this too, so you can check that out. Title again is The Golden Warrior, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia by Lawrence James. So Lawrence James, are you there? Yes. Awesome. Welcome. Well, thanks for uh, returning to the show. For people who, I mean, you have kind of a long writing history. Can you talk about your interest in T.E. Lawrence and how uh, the, the genesis of this book, The Golden Warrior, took place? Well, I suppose, it, like most of us, it's the film. Um, this wonderful epic, Bruckner-esque music, one extraordinary desert landscapes, acts of daring do, courage, blowing up railway trains, uh, and the hero itself, this Englishman who goes into the desert, rallies the tribes, um, full of, uh, brave as a lion, but troubled by self-doubts. I mean, he is a man of action. But his writing, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and his later life shows that he was also an intellectual, a scholar, a man who thinks and writes, and he is a perfect hero. Um, if you think of the First World War, most people experience the First World War in mud, trenches, mass weapons of mass chemical destruction. But here is war in its traditional sort, fought in an open landscape with cavalry charges and men riding on camels and hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I mean, Lawrence is a man of action and an intellectual uh, thrown into this war, which has a glamour, a romantic glamour. Lawrence is the only man, he translates in later life, Homer's Odyssey. And yet he is the only translator of Homer's Odysseys who's ever killed a man in battle. So he is an extraordinary figure. And Sorry? I mean, he really is. I mean, he's really an extraordinary... For an intellectual from the UK to somehow make his way to the Middle East and then to get involved in a kind of... Uh, one of the areas, arenas of battle in World War One against the Ottoman Empire is extraordinary. Can you talk about his background? And he had a kind of curious background and also his intellectual genesis, because a lot of people miss that part of the story, the background of what happened prior to World War I. Yes, he was a product of an unusual Victorian family. I mean, he, the family are based in a large house in North Oxford, obviously middle class. 
His father is obviously a gentleman. There are servants in the house. But the truth is that his father was an Irish landowner, an old Etonian, who'd uh, run away with the family nanny. She was a working-class Scottish girl, deeply religious, very much concerned with sin. They go away, they live together as man and wife for the rest of their lives, and they produce five children. And you have this background of uh, an English upper-middle-class family, outwardly respectable, pious churchgoers, hiding this dreadful secret, which Lawrence, as a young man, a very clever young man, quickly understands. His father does no work. His father lives off revenues from his Irish estates, and yet they live in a strange sort of half-world. They are openly respectable, and yet, and they're both deeply religious, aware that they're living a life of sin. Right, so it's kind of a curious upbringing. So his father is an Etonian, so he comes from an educated background of a kind of landed gentry, but not as uh, outwardly respectable as you think. Can you talk about, also, I think he grew up in Oxford, so he was exposed to this kind of university culture, correct, at a young age? Yes, very young. He became entranced with the Middle Ages, if you like, a medieval world of chivalry, of knights, of troubadours, and the romance of it appealed to him. I mean, he read Arthurian legends and was completely transfixed. It was, in a way, he was creating a, a sort of other life, uh, a sort of private life. He uh, rubs, rubs brasses, visits churches, collects antiquities, uh, and he is deeply scholarly. He's a, an intelligent boy. He goes to the local grammar school and proceeds uh, to Jesus College, Oxford, um, where he has, wants to train as a medievalist. And as a young man, he, uh, uh, 17 or 18, he goes to the Middle East to look at Crusader castles. So he's living, he creates a world for himself out of the romance of medieval chivalry, the age of knights, paladins, the Crusades. Um, and I think his parents are in a way puzzled by this. I mean, he makes his dear father sort of cycle across swathes of England to rub church brasses. And, and the family actually, just, his parents decide to build him a, a small house of his own, a sort of study isolated in the garden where he can enter and indulge his interest in the heroic past. Right, because so his interest in the heroic, heroic past would influence his heroic present and future. But I think it's a really important part of the story about his travels in pre-war Middle East, because he's going from castle to castle by himself, right? In kind of yeah. uncharted territory for an Englishman, maybe. It is. It's quite dangerous territory. Uh, one of the first things his father does when he's about to go to Syria is buy him a Mauser automatic pistol. And as an Englishman traveling... He had letters from the foreign secretary telling the Turkish authorities that they had to treat him with a great deal of respect and, um, you know, woe betide them if any harm fell to an Englishman traveling in the Ottoman Empire. So he had, if you like, the, the backing of the 
imperial government, personal protection, an automatic pistol, the most sophisticated of its kind, Churchill had one. And so uh, he's a very special sort of traveler. Uh, if he. Please continue. Yeah. Uh, and as an Englishman in the Middle East, uh, everyone knows, particularly the Turkish officials, that he is protected by one of the greatest powers in the world. Right. So he's traveling around and he's taking etchings and writing and drawing these old castles yeah. in present day Iraq um, and Syria. And so that's kind of his exposure to that world. So he's learning from the different cultures and ethnicities at, uh, in the Middle East at that time, correct? Yes, he does. And he, he is fascinated by the Middle East. It, it is a region uh, which, through his eyes, seems to be almost still itself in the Middle Ages. Uh, there are sheikhs, there are princes, um, and all around him, you know, the landscape of the men like Richard Coeur de Lyon um, and of Saladin. And I think he finds it very intoxicating. And he learns a good an, enough Arabic to get himself, when war breaks out, enlisted in the British Secret Service. Right. So can you talk about his entry into the intelligence, uh, intelligence field? Yes, he was a very patriotic young man from a patriotic family, probably very conservative. And when war breaks out, like thousands upon thousands of other young men, he wants to volunteer and fight for his country, as his brother, elder brothers do. And he appears to the war office and they look at his, his CV, look what he's done. He speaks Arabic, he knows these people, um, and we're about to fight one of the great intelligence wars of all time in the Middle East. So let's send him to Cairo, to the intelligence department. We're recruiting you know, young explorers, uh, men like this, uh, to go to Egypt, which is then controlled by Britain, and from offices in, in Cairo, they are to wage a secret war against the Ottoman Empire and, of course, gather intelligence. Lawrence, he is automatically commissioned um, and he goes out and when he arrives, almost within a few weeks, he is plunged into this world of the Secret Service and he actually does something very daring. He gets into an aeroplane, something of a novelty, and flies over the Sinai Desert taking photographs um, to help map makers and also to find out where the Turkish army might be. So it's, it's in a very exciting world he's in. His letters home to his parents um, are, are full of excitement. And he, you know, this is a, a, an exotic, fascinating and slightly frightening world he's in. And he does enjoy it. Right. So he's kind of put into this interesting world of foreign places and conflicts. And how does he end up kind of becoming involved with the Arabic revolt or what's known as the Arab revolt? Yeah. Well, he's his first task and when he arrives in Cairo uh, and for the next, from 1914 to 1916, the British are waging a secret war. They are trying a, a great intelligence war. In 1914, Turkey goes to war with Britain. The Ottoman Sultan uh, issues a, a jihadic 
well, he makes an appeal for a mass jihad. Right. Every Muslim living in French, British, or Russian territory was ordered by God to fight the infidels. Now, this terrified the British. Uh, it meant that there was no security in India or any other part of our empire where Muslims lived. And the answer was somehow to blunt the edge of the Sultan's jihad. And to make matters worse, the British strike, they try and invade Turkey, Gallipoli, they're defeated. They're defeated again in Iraq, which they invaded. And so by 1916, they're saying we need something extra to sort of weaken the Ottoman Sultan. Turks are doing rather well, no one expected. And at the same time, Lawrence, as he sits in his office reading the telegrams which come into the intelligence headquarters, he knows that secretly Britain, France and Russia have already decided to divide the Ottoman Empire between themselves. No one at the time knew how the First World War would end, so the best thing was to prepare for a, a truce, a peace of some kind, in which the spoils were shared out. And then Lawrence gets involved in an intelligence coup. The, he is, joins a unit of officers who are supporting the Prince of Hejaz. Hejaz, uh, the Hashemite princes of Jihad, control the holy places of Mecca and Medina. And they are being persuaded and are persuaded to throw in their lot with the British. And these two men with high status amongst Sunnis and Muslims have suddenly said, no, we're not for the Sultan, we're for the Allies. And this is blunting the edge of the Sultan's propaganda. Right. And it takes place in an area where they didn't really expect, or at least the Ottomans didn't expect uh, a challenge, correct? Yes, they didn't expect a challenge. They were doing rather well um, with their German and Austrian allies. Um, they seem to be uh, winning on all fronts. And suddenly this, these two, uh, this Arab prince decides he will uh, turn against his sultan and he has a high religious status. He's somewhere, someone who's going to be listened to. And when he rebels, one of the first things the British propaganda and French propaganda do, they announce to their Muslim subjects that the Prince of Medina and Mecca is, is, is in rebellion. Good Muslims must now know that the Allies are their friends. Right. So it's a very important counterposition to the Ottoman uh, Sultan, right? So there's this yeah. opposition. And it was Faisal. Is that the correct person it was? Yes. It's so, Prince Faisal, the son of the uh, ruler of Hejaz, who is the uh, sort of military leader, he and his brother Abdullah. And they asked for British help. They asked for British gold. They asked for British rifles, machine guns, and military advisors. They also asked for warships, which appear in the Red Sea off Jidda, and a small number of British soldiers. And this revolt is like a flickering flame. And what Lawrence finds himself doing, he is sent as part of the mission. He's an Arabic speaker. Um, and he quickly says, this, is a, this movement can be enormously to our advantage. We can fight a war in the desert, a guerrilla war. We can destroy the Turkish railway, which runs um, from Damascus 
to uh, Medina and they can draw in more and more Turkish soldiers. This will be a running sore in the side of the Ottoman Empire. Right, and that's kind of exactly what happened, right? After it, the... it, it, it happens. And Lawrence is very lucky because in the high command in Cairo, a lot of people were saying, let's send British troops to, um, to Medina Hejaz. Let's send more British soldiers. And in London, they were worried about fighting on the Western Front. And Lawrence's report of how to mobilize the Arabs is seen by um, Sir William Robertson, the chief of general staff. And he doesn't want to send any soldiers to the Middle East if he can help it. And here's this young officer who is proposing that we get the Arabs to do the fighting. And General Robertson and his subordinates, and later the commander-in-chief in the Middle East, General Allenby, all realize this is an excellent policy. Get these Arabs to fight, and they will play havoc with the Turks and lines of communication, and Turkey will be weakened, and we don't have to sp uh, send white troops away out of Europe, where they're it, most needed. Right, and the Arabs did have a stake in the future because they were looking for self-determination and autonomy, correct? So they had yeah. something to fight for. Yeah, Lawrence promises himself determination and autonomy. He knows that both Britain and France and Russia, by the Sykes-Picot Treaty, had partitioned the Middle East into British, French and Russian sections. But he knows at the same time that uh, the Arabs, he doesn't want them to become detached from Britain, far from it. He would like to see them as independent rulers under the protection and at a distance the control of Britain, just as in India, Indian princes served the British government. He saw the Arabs as natural allies of, and part of the British Empire. Right, and I think an important part of the story is that Faisal is an as an heir to Muhammad. He's part of the Hashemite kingdom, so there's a direct yeah. lineage to you, right? So he has that authority um, among the Arab tribes, right? Yeah. He does. But one should add that quite a few of the Arab tribes did stay loyal to the Turkish Sultan. Gotcha. So there wasn't full uniformity, but they still, the, I mean, the uh, T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia had incredible successes in certain campaigns, correct? Yes, he does. Uh, he, he's got a good formula. He realizes the Arabs make excellent guerrilla fighters but he persuades the military authorities in Cairo to send them uh, what we might call stiffening, uh, that's machine guns, and furthermore, uh, British, Indian, and as I think French soldiers uh, as advisors and specialists like Algerian gun French Algerian gunners. And above all, quite important, um, he persuades the British government to give them aircraft. So you have a guerrilla army, mobile, striking hit hard at the enemy and disappearing into the desert. At the same time, a stiffening and backup of uh, what you might call it Western firepower. Right. And so there is kind of the famous scene from the film, at least, and about Aqaba. And how did he resolve to take that city that uh, they thought was impregnable? 
Well, this is the machinations of the British Secret Service. Um, they picked up information that Aqaba was not strongly defended from the sea. And they'd picked up intelligence that Italian and French warships had been seen in the area and that, I've, that the French might seize it. And the Royal Navy was very worried about using Aqaba. And so he set off to take it from the land as a coup. He would take it in the name of the Arabs, Johnny Clever, and this would, uh, would anger the French, certainly, but they couldn't object. It wasn't a British coup. It was an Arab coup, but directed for Britain's interests. And he has this amazing attack, a march to Aqaba, attacks it and takes it over. And within a few months, it is the port through which British uh, soldiers and supplies come. Right. So that's, right. And it's a very important part about Allenby's later campaign, correct? Yeah. Yes. We've got not only the Arabs, Arab irregular, Arab guerrillas, partisans, um, but we've also got a port through which we can supply, not only bring in reinforcements, which were needed. I mean, one attack on the Hejaz railway, uh, the Arabs attacked and, and the Turks stopped the train and out came Turkish soldiers. Uh, and, and the Arabs sort of began to weaken. They didn't like the look of this. But behind the uh, British, behind the Arabs, there were two British Rolls-Royce armoured cars, which is, if you like, stiffened their resistance. Um, and so that the extra help was always useful. And Lawrence understood this. And, of course, he paid them in gold sovereigns. He, the British did this. It's a very British trick. The British um, took over the Bank of Cairo's gold assets, replaced them with ordinary banknotes, and used the gold to uh, fund the Arab rebellion. Fascinating. So they got paid in literal in coin for uh, yeah. the things, and it was all, it's kind of an old tradition of banditry. I mean, yes, yeah, of the, among the Arabs. Hello. Can you talk about that? Sorry. Yeah, please continue. Can you talk oh, right. about the later kind of railway war and how that continued towards Damascus? Yes, the railway war was um, the railway which ran from Damascus to Medina and Mecca originally carried pilgrims. And the Arabs, Arabs who live, whose, land, whose lands it crossed were a bit annoyed because they used to extract money from pilgrims. And this has stopped. The railway raids um, stopped reinforcements moving up and down the Turkish line and distracted the Turkish authorities. They had to move more troops in to guard the station. Um, and the governor of Medina, uh, Fakhradin Pasha, a brave soldier, uh, he thought it was very useful because he, he was besieged, but not very seriously. And he said, well, you know, when they, uh, the Arabs blow up a section of the railway line, my lazy soldiers can do some work for a day. And this war goes on until the summer of 1918. The tra trains are um, blown up, the railway repaired. The Turks uh, have to keep a large garrisons, tying down troops, being a nuisance to the enemy. Um, and then the course of the war changes because in 1918, 
um, Lord Allenby proposes an advance from Jerusalem. They've taken Jerusalem in Christmas 1917 towards Damascus, a knockout blow to destroy the Ottoman state in what is now Palestine and Syria. Right. And so that was kind of like Allenby came up the coast through Jerusalem and the Arabs under TE were kind of moving through modern day Jordan or Tran uh, Jordan, right? Yes. Towards Damascus, right? Yeah. They're, they're moving up on the flank. They're distracting the Turks and they're playing havoc with their communications. The railway only and finally the railway um, becomes unusable in the spring of 1918. Amongst the trains was one which last trains to get through, which was one which carried um, newspapers and reports from Constantinople, the Turkish capital, which exposed the fact that Britain and France and Russia were planning to partition the Ottoman Empire, which was obviously quite a shock to many people, was to Lawrence. Right, and that was supposed to be part of his alliance with the Arabs, was they would get some some type of benefit once the war ended. So they, and I mean, it goes to, can you talk about the entry into Damascus? You say it's kind of like there might be some betrayal or disappointment about how that all played out, correct? Yeah. When the Allies advance, and the Arabs are now accounted Allies, on Damascus, it's a massacre. Uh, the Turks completely collapse. Um, the aircraft pursue them. They're pursued by cavalry, Australian cavalry, and British and Indian and forces. The army disintegrates. Um, in fact, it was so terrible that one RAF officer complained to his command, he said, I don't want to shoot down fleeing men. This is a, not warfare. And Lawrence's Arabs join in. Um, they arrive in Damascus a few hours after some Australian cavalry ride through the city. So uh, Damascus is actually liberated uh, by Australian horsemen. Hmm. The Arabs arrive. And they try to set up a government. But the city is in pandemonium. Um, a lot of the Arab forces have, uh, are looting, uh, looting prisoners, generally looting. And the city dissolves into anarchy. And once this happens, Allenby moves Australian troops in, um, Australian cavalry and infantry, and peace is restored. Uh, and Lawrence really doesn't know what to do about this. He... Uh, when he meets Allenby, he says, you know, he, he says he's under the impression that the Arabs have been promised Syria. Well, they haven't been promised anything of the sort. And Allenby sort of calms it down by saying, look, uh, the war is now over. The Ottoman Empire is about to accept unconditional surrender. This is going to be settled after the war. But Allenby also knows that the French are there and the French are demanding um, modern-day Libya, a lot, sorry, modern-day Lebanon and Syria as their kind of, you know, their special loot, if you like, of the war. And Allenby doesn't want to have a rift with the French. So Lawrence arrives, he's a triumph in Damascus, Arab soldiers pour into the city, but uh, its future is uncertain. And so Lawrence having won this, helped win this war, 
ceases to be a soldier and he becomes a diplomat. He goes to the Versailles Conference to try and settle this matter. Um, and he, he takes Prince Faisal with him. And on their way, they go through uh, London. And as was common, uh, Faisal is taken by Lawrence to see the great industrial city of Glasgow. He's also taken on board a British battleship. And it was a way of saying, don't forget that Britain is a great, mighty industrial and imperial power. So, you know, these are the people to keep on your side. One of the interesting aspects of Lawrence is his ability to really uh, ingratiate himself with the Arabs. Like there was something about his personality that they seemed to trust him and made him part of that. What, what do you think about his personality that, that was like that? Because maybe a different personality wouldn't have been as successful. Would you agree with that? I agree absolutely. I mean, Lawrence was a dynamic figure. Um, he relished... He, he, he almost apologizes for relishing battle. Uh, he is brave. He leads by example. And, of course, he has a, a saddlebag full of gold sovereigns, which is obviously going to make him welcome. But he also treats the Arabs with less condescension and arrogance than a lot of British officers did. I mean, to many British officers, they were a ragtag and bobtail crew. But Lawrence treated them, um, respected them, uh, he, they take his, you know, they, they are inspired by him. They see him as a, a, a you know, he fits the warrior tradition of the Bedouin. He is a warrior like them. And he is also a foreigner who can be trusted and respected. There's a line in the Quran um, which says, beware of strangers bearing gifts. But Lawrence is able to override this prejudice and make himself appear as the Arabs' friends, and they, they respect this. And so, so he had this kind of, uh, there was a lot of honor and fealty amongst him and Faisal, but when the Sykes-Picot agreement came out, there was a lot of dissension, right? It was unexpected. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yes, the Sykes-Picot agreement the partition of the Middle East between Russia, Britain, and France was released by Trotsky in 1917, although a lot of Arabs knew about it because the Cairo newspapers, which were anti-British, uh, published some details of it. So uh, people like Faisal, a sophisticated man, would have understood that the three great imperial powers were not going to leave the region alone. They were wanted their rewards. And afterwards, put another way, you know, countries which have given millions of lives in battle expected something in return for it. This was a war of empires. And when it was over, the three imperial powers which won were expecting, and saw it as purely natural, that they would get some kind of imperial reward, which for the French included Syria. Right. So the French took Syria. I think Faisal ended up in the, so his family lineage is in Jordan, right? Yeah. And then Saud, the King Saud ends up with this land that nobody saw any value in at the time, right? Yeah. And what, what the strangest thing happens is that it, 
at Versailles and later when Lawrence works with Churchill at the colonial office, what is establishment is the kingdom of the Jordan and Iraq um, eventually gain a degree of independence. But they are monarchies and they are monarchs like Faisal, who becomes king of Iraq, are dependent on British power to keep them there. And Lawrence um, takes part in uh, the negotiations to bring this about. Faisal, for instance, is allowed the protection of Royal Air Force aircraft. So when there's any trouble in Iraq, the Royal Air Force um, you know, flies out and bombs the troublemakers. And so when Lawrence, with Churchill, who each man adored each other, um, these two recreate a, a Middle East, which the British have two client states. Um, Palestine is ruled by a British administration under the League of Nations, um, and Lawrence uh, accepts the principle there will be Jewish immigration. He thinks this will help the progress and development of Palestine, which, and of course Russia's out of the war, gets nothing, um, and Syria is and the Lebanon are given to France, um, where there is resistance. I mean, there is resistance rebellions in the 1920s against France. But so there's an imperial settlement. Arab independence is gained, but it's limited. It's the great powers. Britain still is the puppet master, whereas France um, has direct rule over Syria, which was not loved. And what was what was uh, Lawrence's view of Balfour. So he, the Balfour Declaration, was he in a sense with that, with its principles? Uh, yes, he did. I mean, he once wrote that he could see that the um, uh, the import of intelligent, um, sophisticated Jewish immigrants from Europe <coughs> would uh, make the, um, <coughs> would make Palestine help its development, its economic um, development is political development because in the same way <clears throat> one must remember that the uh, Zionists had also been interested in uh, establishing settlements in Uganda so Lawrence accepts the idea that there will be this leaven of, uh, of Jewish immigration which would raise standards education all the good things which empires were supposed to bring. Right. And so that the the I think that was the British oversight of Palestine lasted from 17 to 47, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And so kind of uh he after the his stature doesn't diminish after World War One, correct? It only increases. Would you agree with that? Yes, it does increase. He he is because he's working in in if you like, uh, the secret war of intelligence. It's only at the very end of the war the British people hear of this gallant British officer who is leading the Arabs into battle against the Turks. And John Buchan, who later becomes Lawrence's friend, sends out an American journalist and photographer to, uh, you know, produce a propaganda film for American cinemas which would show the war being waged in the Middle East. And of course, 
the audiences would have been pleased to hear that this on our side were people fighting for their freedom. And Lowell Thomas made this into a show, which was shown in London, a film, a kind of marvelous show. And Lawrence suddenly becomes a hero. Uh, here is this brave Englishman, the memories of Gordon of Khartoum and people like that. Um, but what is important is that he is, unlike the generals, he's an ordinary man who's become a soldier. He is a young man. Um, he is stands for all the young men who went out to fight battle. And his war was romantic, exciting, and he's very photogenic. And people needed a hero. There was no Nelson or Wellington to satisfy people after the end of the First World War. A lot of them suspected the generals had been rather indifferent, and some of them absolutely useless. This wasn't true, but nevertheless, Lawrence is the ideal man. Young, photogenic, um, a scholar, an intellectual, a man in the street who had been play placed in the middle of a battlefield. Right. He, he really was kind of a scholar warrior. He was definitely yeah. like a warrior scholar. And I mean, he kind of, you talk a lot more about his post-war life as a man of letters, a gentleman, death of a healer. But you also talk about how, you know, some of the you talk about orthodoxy and revisionism in the kind of the last part of your book and also how it gets reborn. Can you talk maybe about some of his criticisms of stuff in uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom or his perception of uh, T. Lawrence before we wrap up the interview? Yeah. Well, he his old love of the chivalric romance, of the Arthurian legend, and he is egotistical, he is extremely vain, but as his cousin said, yes, he was a show-off, but he had a lot to show. And he uh, leaves the world of politics and decides to make a new life for himself. He wants to be a writer, writing his own experiences, and he produces what are his war memoirs, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And there is an element, there are elements of exaggeration. But look at the other political war uh, memoirs which come out of the First World War, Churchill's or Lloyd George's. They're both really, all of them are really saying, this is about my part in the war and they make themselves into their own heroes. And Lawrence does this, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. He is also, um, then he does strange things. He, you know, he is, is a writer, reviewer, translator, um, and he mixes in two, leads a strange life. He mixes in two societies. He suddenly becomes an ordinary aircraftman. He moves into the, uh, alongside private soldiers. He moves into a mess. Uh, he lives among, well, most of them are working men, uh, quite unlike the class he was born into. And at the same time, he is a man of letters. He is a man um, you know, who is invited to dinner parties in London, the sophisticated dinner parties. Um, I mean, Rosamund Learman remembers going to one and she said, Colonel Lawrence was there. And you know what he talked about? His favorite subject, himself. But the hostesses were absolutely pleased to have him. Uh, Lady Astor, it, it amused the airmen. The airbase was Axbridge, just outside London. And the ordinary airman would see this chap uh, and he would um, sort of leave. On Friday, he'd say, well, I'm leaving. And a Rolls Royce would turn up and he'd, um, step into it and join 
Lady Astor's um, weekend parties at Clifton. He lived strangely in two worlds. You know, he would um, be his his friends range from Churchill to John Buchan uh, to Thomas Hardy. Um, he is regarded as an intellectual. He he he, he was a rather wayward character. Um, he once wrote in a review that all women novelists are awful. Uh, you know, he could sort of behave like an impish schoolboy. A lot of people like him, him to that. Um, and he would, as Noel Coward said, who, who met him, and obviously he said, yes, he was quite wonderful, but he could talk the most awful balls. Uh, and so you've got this, uh, you know, he, he, his eccentricity, which is partly cultivated, and he enjoys it. He just being a naughty boy. Um, but people didn't mind this very much. Um, and at the same time, he is a national hero. And he's also associated with the Air Force, flying. This is the age of the, the, the pioneer pilots, the Limburgs, uh, these kind of people. So he, by working in the Air Force in a very lowly capacity, he is still associated with something romantic, the conquest of the air. So he plays it very carefully. And yeah, he was very smart. He was in the right place at the right time in a lot of places in his yeah, life. Yes, and um, he has the, 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 the vanity was, you know, it was all part of it, and people loved him. Um, they liked him. Uh, he, he, he could be, and he was a kind and generous man. Um, when he heard that one of his fellow airmen had been confined to barracks, and uh, couldn't go to his own wedding. He quietly got up and rang up Winston Churchill and said, could you fix this for me? And uh, it was, of course, fixed. So he, st he straddles two worlds of the, uh, if you like, the, the world of the working man in the armed services and the world of literary and aristocratic society. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Really interesting book. Where's the best place to, to get the book? I know that you have an audio version of the book, correct? I hope that there are still plenty of copies on sale. Yeah, there are. I see them right here. So you, there's paperback, hardcover versions, yeah. at least here in the States. Right. And I think the same is true in this country. And do you, I don't remember, do you, Lawrence, have social media or website? Um, not a website. Right. So no, I... I avoid social media, though I sometimes uh, comment rather <coughs> disapprovingly on the Conservative Party website. Gotcha. But do you, um, what's the best place if people want to contact, contact you through your publisher? Is that correct? Uh, through my publisher or my agent, uh, Andrew Loney, who's unfortunately under COVID surveillance at the moment, but he's uh, getting through. <laughs> well, I hope he it works out. I hope he feels yeah, better. I, yeah, I do too. Again, a uh, great interview, great conversation about this interesting book about a very fascinating figure in Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence. Again, the title of the book is The Golden Warrior, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia by Lawrence James. Thank you so much, Lawrence. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Have a great day. Okay, I'm going to have a sip of wine. I'll okay, drink good. to you. I drink to you too.